This is Crossing Bridges, brought to you by OneUp, a coalition to end police brutality. Each show, we bring together one person from the world of activism and one person from the world of advertising and entertainment to discuss the issues of police reform and social justice. Today's host is Sing Chung, co-founder and president of Los Angeles-based creative advertising agency Cashmere. He'll be speaking with Chris Burbank, Vice President of Law Enforcement Strategy for the Center for Policing Equity and former Chief of Police for Salt Lake City. Today's topic is Defund and Reimagine. And now here's Sing Chung and Chris Burbank. Hi, I'm Sing Chung, CEO and co-founder of Cashmere Agency. Hi, I'm Chris Burbank, Vice President for the Center for Policing Equity. Let's unpack and deconstruct defunding the police. It's a trigger word. It's polarizing. People feel certain emotions when they hear that phrase. I heard and like reimagining the police, and I heard that first through the Center for Policing Equity. So why has the terminology defund the police been so controversial? And what does defunding the police mean to you? Well, so defund the police is all over the map, I think, is why it's so controversial. No one really knows what it means. In fact, some people who are advocating defund the police don't actually know how to go about a project like that. And so for the Center for Policing Equity, what we look at and what we prefer is reimagining what the police do. We have made the mistake, we'll just go with the last 30 years, but throughout the history of policing, of not applying science. Is what we're doing actually producing the outcome or the results that we want? The answer to that is no. Obviously, no. And in fact, we have failed to include a large segment of society as policing is modernized. We have allowed a segment of our society to be them or the people that we're against or trying to solve the problem for. And so to defund the police by simply looking and saying, all right, these are the activities we engage in. If they're not producing the results, then let's no longer do those activities. Right? Let's not engage in, we'll just say, traffic stops, for an example. No longer will we send officers out to write tickets. And by doing so, you will naturally change the budget requirements of a police department. But what you will do is you'll defund that through a little bit of thought, not simply just cutting the budget. There's varying degrees of defunding the police, and it's not a, a cookie cutter approach. It's like potentially customizing it for each department and city and so forth. And there's a lot of different factors that go into it. But there are uh, various, like I said, varying degrees of it. So there is the burn it down, people say. Various movements would say that. So like the city of Camden, New Jersey. So they reset. Are you familiar with uh, what they did there? And the, Oh, very familiar. Okay. Absolutely. They, in essence, reset what they did. In doing so, they still engage in some of the same activities that they did before. They just changed how they go about it. I think where we've gotten to now with following Minneapolis and Floyd and the events that have taken place over the last six, seven months, I think we're to the point that we really need to say, is policing doing the things that we want it to do? Right? And that runs all the way, like I say, from writing tickets to serving warrants to uh, conducting searches of individuals on the street, who we arrest, why we're arresting them, and why we're sending the police in the first place. Again, we make the mistake of saying, well, if we just train the police officers better, if we just change the dynamic, we still send them on the same thing, but maybe the bad outcome won't happen. And that's just not the case. The bigger question is, 
why send the police in the first place? Who else can we send in their place that is not an armed individual that creates an environment in which someone may lose their life? So then I hear, I've read that in Minneapolis, um, you know, after defunding and, and, and shifting some of the budgets uh, um, from the police department to other social goods and things like that. But they recently, I, I think in the beginning of the year, increased the funds due to public outcry and so forth. I know Austin, they reduced um, their police budgets by 33%. And then you've got the governor saying, uh, spreading misinformation, the, the state attorney general saying certain things that's not true about the city of Austin. So opponents argue that defunding the police would reduce the funding for training and professional development and the slow response times and increase in crime. What are your thoughts on that and where's the money going? Policing in this nation makes up about anywhere from 40 to 60% of a municipal budget in any given city. It is a line item budget that you can go right down the list and say, this is how much it costs for X, right? And that includes police officers, their training, their equipment. Uh, it includes or should include right? The cost of every activity the police officer engages in. So in some cases, it's as simple as if you don't want your police officers to drive an armored vehicle into the crowd, don't buy an armored vehicle, right? And that is as simple as that. And you have just cut $500,000 off your budget or more in some cases. So there are avenues to do this, but what we, or what uh, people who are saying, no, 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 this is the wrong way. We look at this snippet in time, right? Policing over the last 30 years, the trend line for crime, the trend line for officer-involved shootings, the trend line is relatively flat. Now that doesn't mean that it's all right, but it doesn't mean that we have these huge increases and decreases, especially over month over month or year over year. And so people will start to talk, well, crime's gone up and it's obviously because of this program. Well, no, because crime was at an all-time high in the mid-90s. We had more police officers making more arrests, serving more search warrants, incarcerating more people at the end of the day, and crime was on a huge uptick, especially violent crime. A few years later, we suffered economic crisis. We had 40,000 fewer police officers on the street one year over next, and crime dropped dramatically. It's it's not about what the police do. It's about all those societal issues. It's about health care. It's about access to work. It's about education. This is a holistic problem that we have created by simply heaping everything in the policing realm. Let's start distributing that out. And that's how you defund because now, oh, I'm going to put money towards social service programs. I'm going to put money towards homelessness issues. I'm going to put money towards drug rehab as opposed to drug rehab following incarceration or mandated by the court, we're going to create avenues that there is no law enforcement interjection. You're simply going to put people in this or allow them into this to get the support they need. It's much cheaper. This is the other mistake that people, oh, that's so expensive. No, police officers, right, in Salt Lake City, a police officer fully loaded costs the citizens about $100 an hour. And that's relatively cheap policing, right? You look in other parts of the country, especially Austin and some of those that you mentioned, policing is expensive. And it's a sad commentary on society, but we can get social workers at half the price at extremely discounted rates. Why would we not 
utilize more of those individuals who are better equipped to deal with people in mental health crisis, in drug and alcohol crisis, than a police officer. Getting the right people for the, the, the right applications of social needs and, and so forth. So that's super interesting. It's like I mentioned before that it seems like it's politically charged where there is spreading of misinformation. There's outlet media outlets that's picking that up. And it's become so politically charged. There's a line between left and right politics. How or when does it become a nonpartisan issue? Because again, at the end of the day, it's, it's about human kindness and, and humankind rights and, and, and things like that. So what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you're absolutely right, right? When policing is partisan, it's wrong. It does not work. The notion or idea that policing deals better towards your political preference is as absurd as policing leaning or dealing with race differently or religion differently, right? That is the problem that is modern policing is we have allowed it to become this political football that leaves the well-being, the human aspect of policing. That is best, right? This is the best part of policing. You get human beings who are empathetic, who understand and can articulate and want to help society. And you put arbitrary rules on them that you will do this. You'll make arrests for everything. You'll write all kinds of tickets. You'll just go on and on down the line and you destroy what is best between human relationships. That's where we need to get back to. That's community policing. That's policing at its best when the interest of a successful outcome is more important than somebody going to jail. Let's talk about the officers. So Derek Chauvin is on trial right now, and George Floyd is front and center. As a former police chief, you got rid of bad apples. Why is it so hard to prosecute these officers, and, and how can they be held accountable? We look at that moment in time, right, that 30 seconds that we saw, or in this case, eight minutes that we saw, and we say we want to change that eight minutes. The question should be, why is the officer there? Why do we have the interaction in the first place, right? Let's change it before it even happens. And in some cases, why do people in this country, and this is no exaggeration, have over 500 arrests in their lifetime? Do we really think if we arrest them 530 times that that'll solve the problem? I mean, this is absurd behavior and actions on the part of the government. So let's start looking back here. Why are we doing what we're doing? But then when we look and we say, why is it so hard to convict police officers? Because the way the rules are set up, right? Use of force in this country lacks a necessary standard, lacks an immediacy standard, and lacks a totality of the circumstance. So all they look at is that 30 seconds. And when you and I are engaged in an altercation, that 30 seconds, right, is a very different perspective than the last hour and a half in which one or both of us were completely unreasonable. And that's where we need to expand. Otherwise, we're going to go through this right, time and time again. I started my policing career when Rodney King happened in Los Angeles. This is nothing new. Unfortunately, it is the same thing over and over again. And we're expecting a different outcome. I, I've seen your previous press conferences and interviews, and, and you're well-respected. How did you gain the trust of the community then? At those moments when 
I expected my officers to do something different as they engaged with the community than what the norm was, I tried to be there. I was there in the middle when it was Occupy, when it was the Destiny Norton case, when a, a, a six-year-old little girl was kidnapped and killed. The opportunity to say, no, there's a different way to do this. We are not going to put on riot gear. We're not going to stand in the line. We're not going to force this issue in the next hour. Human beings are much more important than money. And we fail to see that time and time again when we have this notion or idea, well, there's another call waiting, we gotta get to that. No, the most important thing is what sits in front of you at that moment to make sure that it's resolved peacefully. And when you can guarantee that for every interaction that takes place, well, then maybe you won't even have the next interaction. Hmm. At that time, they didn't really name it as progressive, but that sounds like progressive thinking. And that sounds like you have shared values of what various elements of defunding the police is doing. And it was on your watch as Salt Lake City Police Department that you worked with the Center for Policing Equity. Can you explain that relationship and how you were engaged and what they did for you? Oh, absolutely. So at the time I was the vice president of the major city chiefs organization. So it's the 70 largest agencies in the United States and Canada. And the founder, well, the co-founders came to me and said, hey, we want to work on policing, right? Philip Ativa Goff, who did his graduate work on implicit bias and racism in systems, came and said, I want to look at police data. How do I get access to it? And so we started down the road together looking at individual police agencies and seeing how could we change circumstances. So in Denver, it was officer-involved shootings. In Salt Lake City, it was the immigration issue and the debate over are undocumented individuals committing crime at a higher rate. What developed my, we'll say, testimony of the strength of using science to inform our policing decisions is the rhetoric around immigration was that undocumented individuals were committing crime at outrageous rates and committing horrible crimes. So I opened up all the data to research scientists and said, tell me who's committing those crimes. And in fact, undocumented individuals in the city of Salt Lake were committing crime at a much less proportion, at a smaller proportion than the rest of society. But one of the most telling things is when the society comes back, right, when the community comes back and says, well, as an undocumented individual, if you're an immigration agent, I wouldn't call you. When our Latino community says, well, yeah, if you're undocumented, you know, if you're acting as an immigration agent, I'm not calling you. But when the white population says, I'd be less inclined to call you because I would view you as less legitimate if you engage in that activity. Now, while that didn't change the legislature's mind, they still enacted the law, but it never went into place because of lawsuits and everything else. That law that in essence, the Utah State Legislature put in place never went into effect. And from the research created an avenue to where it wasn't the crazy liberal police chief in Salt Lake City against the conservative legislature, it was science. And so our business community, faith community, right? People started to sign on and born from this was the Utah Compact, which said, we believe in the humanity of all people and the value of families and not separating people. And 
that created a groundswell in the state of Utah that overcame this horrible legislation, right? That created avenues for people to stand up and say, yes, there's a better way to do business. And so it was from that point on that I said, no, I am committed to this. And in fact, Phil and I have testified in front of Congress together over the years. We've given countless speeches and interactions and talk to school groups as well as legislative bodies in order to say there's a better way to do business and we know how to get to it. We can study it and we can prove it. Just give us this trust to make the change. So data and analytics approach, I think the CP is great for identifying and creating policy, ban on no-knock warrants, uh, ban on chokeholds, creating a national database for discharge officers. Last 10 years, you've worked with over 45 police departments. Yes, 45 that we have really done research and been involved in. We've worked with hundreds of police agencies on one-offs. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about this one issue that's going on. And so our reach is significant. And what's important is when we look at these cities that we've worked in, when we look at the data that, and you know how has it changed things, right? We see a decrease in use of force. We see a decrease in officer injuries. Right? This is an avenue to improve. And while nothing is going to change it, so where there's nobody injured tomorrow or the next year, imagine families, neighborhoods, communities, who that one loved one is still with them. Look at the Floyd incident. How would have that changed America had that eight minutes gone differently? No, absolutely, absolutely. So currently, what is your new role at the CPE? My role is, hasn't changed a whole bunch other than I represent the law enforcement kind of relationship side of CPE, as well as speaking and trying to get the interpretation of CPE, the recommendations that we find through data, into the hands of working police chiefs and police agencies and legislative bodies. What we're really trying to do with the, a pilot project that we're undertaking in Seattle called C4J, right, Comstat for Justice, is looking at justice initiatives, justice within your police department, just like you do crime for Comstat, which is a program by which they deploy police officers based on where crime is and hold them accountable for their actions. And it creates tremendous amount of disparity in the outcome in policing. What we're saying is if we're that focused on crime, why are we not that focused on justice? If we look at that and we measure the actions of police officers and the outcomes of their actions, the same way we do crime, wow, we could change dramatically the use of force and the negative interactions that take place every single day in this country. One op is a call to action for advertising, media, and entertainment to end police brutality. How do you see us as an industry supporting your cause? And, and how can we be an ally? Throughout my career, and it was something that I had the advantage of learning very early on in my policing career, prior to me even becoming the police chief. But as the police chief, right, my best ally, the best avenue that I had to speak to the public was through the media. My partners in the media 
here in Salt Lake City especially, are still extremely strong and call all the time when we have lots of interactions about what's going on in the world today and how to change things. But I always knew if I wanted to speak to the public, I would invite the media in or I would go to them and say, here's what's going on. And this changed the dynamic because when the media reports on the negative thing that Salt Lake City did, and it is a gotcha because someone else is reporting on it, it's vastly different as a community perspective when the police chief is the one who stands up and announces to the media, this is what we did wrong, and this is how we're going to change it to make sure we don't do wrong in the future. That creates legitimacy and trust. The other does not. And so I'm not blaming the media at all for this. This is the mistake of policing of not including the media to access the public. It is, it's a, you cannot go out and meet all the people, even in a smaller city like Salt Lake City. Imagine New York City or Houston or Miami. There's no chance. I couldn't even talk to each one of my employees within a year, let alone every member of the public. And so the media reaches that immediately. Right? And that was my best avenue and my best ally in order to change policing. And it still remains so today. Defunding the police, is it working? No, not yet, not yet. We're, one, we're a little early on in this process. But what my frustration is across the country is we know there are certain things that interject tremendous disparity in the outcome of policing. Search and seizure. As a black man in this nation, you are about eight times more likely to be asked for a consent search. The efficacy of that effort, so the number of times that the officer finds contraband or guns or something inappropriate, we'll say, falls in most cities to about 1%. So 1% of the time, this action by police agencies, this infringement upon the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution of the civil rights of the people they're interjecting themselves into, 1% of the time is effective. Imagine if you had a, a viewership of only 1%. You and I wouldn't be having this conversation right now. But when you look conversely at white males, the efficacy of that effort in some cities increases as much as 25%. Now that doesn't mean you have a bunch of white males running around committing crimes. What it means is the scrutiny that goes into the question of can I search you tonight is much more significant if you have white skin color. You don't need city council approval. All you need to do as a police administrator is say, no longer are we going to do consent searches. If you believe someone needs to be searched, you will obtain a warrant. And with telephonic warrants, it can be done very quickly. This is stop and frisk in New York City. 1%, or less than 1% in New York City, effective. And imagine the millions of people that were impacted by this program negatively. The, I mean, it just blows my mind, the number of black and brown 20-somethings that were stopped on the street for no reason whatsoever, multiple times. Why do we write traffic tickets? 
There's no correlation between increased safety on a roadway and the act of writing a ticket. Tickets have tremendous bias built into them, right? The disparity that exists across the country with traffic tickets is amazing. And you ask yourself, how many millions of dollars has been spent on that big roadway in whatever town you live in? It's significant. What's the impact to society, the cost to people? And it's not equitable, right? I get a $150 ticket. I'm a little ticked off, but I pay the ticket and go on. If I'm in an economic situation where I'm deciding, do I pay the rent? Do I get the car service, put gas in it, take the kids to school? I mean, all these other things. And then my car may be impounded at a later date. I may even go to jail for failing to pay that ticket. Justice is not equitable in that circumstance. But the most egregious thing in my mind is ask yourself, do people still speed on that roadway? Absolutely not. In fact, the police officers have to hide and allow you to commit the violation, right, the unsafe act, in order to write you a ticket. When we know things like roundabouts, flashing speed signs, changes in the roadway, all these types of things slow traffic down, affect behavior, and guess what? The speed bump in the road doesn't care what race you are. It's always such a, an incredible learning experience talking to you, Chris. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining oh, us today. Pleasure. Big thank you for CPA for being such an active member in our coalition. We hope you enjoyed this interview as much as we did. Stay tuned for the next interview with Crossing Bridges. You've been listening to Crossing Bridges, presented by OneOp. Today's topic was Defund and Reimagine, hosted by Sing Chung, co-founder and president of Kashmir, and his guest, Chris Burbank. Vice President of Law Enforcement Strategy for the Center for Policing Equity and former Chief of Police for Salt Lake City. To learn more about OneOp and our mission to end police brutality, visit oneop.org.